hey, let's let's just recognize that this was the first time I've taken a glider out that wasn't yours, flown <laughs> it, and brought it back home. <laughs> In one piece. Well, technically two, but because well, I took the wing off. Well, yeah. I mean, but that's a that's by design. I mean, it, yeah. it came back the way... Good evening, everybody, and welcome back to the Aviation RC Noob Podcast. My name is Joe. And I'm Matt. And today we're sitting down for episode 60. Uh, Matthew, I think you're planning to talk about power systems tonight, yes? Uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I'm trying to cover something. We'll, we'll see what we can do. And I know you can help with this because you've gone through the process, too, um, of how to size your system, like how to pick all of it, right? I mean, we talked about all the individual things. Um, and they're like a, a ballet dance uh, when you try to put it all together. Because one thing affects the other and affects the other. But there's a there's a general method to it. And there's a couple different ways to tackle it. So we'll cover those My things. way of tackling it is put the biggest engine on it that will fit. <laughs> <laughs> and what is the way you know you should be doing it? <laughs> Instead of that, um, no, yeah, we'll talk definitely about that. that. Definitely yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we'll talk about it. Uh, I know yeah. we've we've covered some of it, um, and that you know, if you're impatient and want to get there, it's usually about the halfway mark. That's mm-hmm. where we kind of get into that. Uh, today, we will not be talking about a history segment. We're going to replace it with some discussions about the FAA. Uh, I was looking around some stuff trying to help our buddy Sam. Um, Sam Platt, because he was like, I'm not going to be a scapegoat, thanks. Um, mm-hmm. So he kind of put everything but the plans as out of stock for a minute while he tried to figure things out. And so I helped him, and I wanted to know myself, and looking up the different rules and regulations and see, like, what what does it currently say mm-hmm. um, uh, about manufacturing a kit and at what point are you responsible to include the remote ID unit? Uh, so okay. we'll cover that. So we'll talk about that. And we'll also, and while I was doing that, I also caught a nugget. Uh, while I was on the FT forums talking about this similar kind of thing. Um, there was a guy, I guess, who used to work with the FAA and dealing with advisory circulars and all kind of stuff. But he was able to look at, found a draft report that I done it because we were talking about like the one thing they haven't done is identify what it takes to be a CBO, a community-based organization. And like <laughs> that's kind of really important. And at this point, you're making it so it's almost impossible for anybody to really set um, work with larger organizations like educational facilities in helping that happen. It, it gets really cumbersome when you're an entire state of educational facilities that you'd like to have as part of this FAA map, right? Register them as free is. That takes time. 
And if you're mm -hmm. only giving us not a whole year, not the three years we would have originally had, had it been rolled out properly. Um, yeah, now we've only got what, less than a year. Um, to be able to try don't to work burn that through all your ammo right now. Anyway, we'll get into the details of though, of what, <laughs> what the draft report says is my point. Um, mm. so we'll talk about what we learned about the Frias. Uh, we will talk about what, it, what we learned, um, at least what I saw, um, about manufacturing and at what point you come in and so we'll talk about that. And then we'll also talk okay. about our community, what we've been doing in the, in the discord and, and all the conversations we've been having and things you and I have been talking about with regards to getting the community active in flying and promoting the hobby. Well then, why don't we go ahead and talk about what we've been doing for the last two weeks and then we can kind of catch up on community events. That sounds like a good plan. Um, now, I'll, I'll go ahead and go first. I finished up uh, during our last build party. Um, I did manage to finish up the Simple Soar. Ooh. Did, was that a build party or was I just building on a Friday night? No, you were, well, I don't know if you finished it up in the build party. And you've just finished it up later, but you did were we building build it in the build party. I don't know if you yeah, finished. Did we have it. a build party two weeks ago? We did. Okay. It was literally Dude, so like as we were finishing up recording, we're like, "Oh, we better go to the build party." <laughs> 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 I think I finished editing like earlier that day and oh, later right. that day, and, to... and you were doing like, "Oh, I, I better listen through and just make sure it's all good before I post it." Mm -hmm. And then I fell asleep and. <laughs> actually went to bed and was going to get up and didn't and yeah. had to wake up next yeah yeah and so, uh for those who are looking getting up yeah for those who are looking up uh for timely follow-up posts uh i was at the cub scout outing i was in the middle of a field enjoying sunrise and sunset later that day and campfire songs and all sorts of fun stuff um consequently i didn't really uh, i think i posted to our facebook timely but uh Passing information to some of the other more popular sites that we we post on, like uh, Light Test Fans and some of the other groups that we usually share things with. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> I can't remember if they made it. I don't know. I tried. Um, well, while you were out in the middle of that uh, Boy Scout outing, you got a phone call from me. I did. Because I was taking the Simple Sorter out for his maiden. Yeah. Um, I was really surprised. So, So how do you set that up? So that it's easy to do, because I know if I'm trying to hold my phone in my ear, it don't work. I had a Bluetooth. Oh, oh, sure, make it easy. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, what I thought was really interesting is that I could hear what was going on well enough to know kind of when you're about to release the plane, and some of the some of the stuff your remote might have been telling you. Um, but I was able to hear you just fine, and I could tell that you were hands-free mm -hmm. so you could definitely concentrate on doing what you're doing yeah so i i mean i was wearing a bluetooth um i can't really say a whole lot about that sounds like i should but get one is all i'm saying it's pretty it's pretty nice i mean there's there's cheaper options out there as far as bluetooth go because like i've got i splurged and got the um Oh, are they the Samsung Buds or something? I, I got some yeah. nice ones with noise canceling. Okay. Um, you're not talking like a like a Plantronic style stuff. You're talking more like a fits in your ear and that's enough. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
Cool. Yeah, and then with, with both, because it goes in both ears, it'll do active noise canceling. Ooh. Um, but I can also double tap the one of them, and it'll put it into aware mode, where actually uh, the microphone will play through mm. some of what I'm hearing. Uh, but okay. it also like dynamically adjusts that, so if something gets too loud, you'll hear everything hush down. Dang. It's, yeah, it's weird. But because... That's what I was using. I could be hands, you know, both hands on the controls and still talking to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, you were able to hear the uh, the battery alert when the battery started going. Well, I mean, that thing's loud. <laughs> that thing's loud normally. But uh, yeah, it I heard it just fine. It's pretty cool, actually. I felt like I was standing next to you in the field. Now, I will say once when the battery alert went and then I landed it and I picked up the plane. So these battery, these battery testers uh that we use as battery alarms they don't stop screaming if the voltage increases Mm-mm. no um, if, if it, it sags down below a limit it starts going and it will not stop until you've landed your plane and and hit the button at least yep so i think there's a there's a button on it too in the in between the two screamers yeah where you can set the voltage that yeah you want but if you press at. that button it will silence the the beeping oh that's good to know mm-hmm. yep I didn't know that. That's why I told you. I appreciate that. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, so I had it set for like 3.5 or 3.6 volts originally. Yeah. Um, just so I knew I had plenty of time. And some batteries seem to front load their milliamps, mm-hmm. you know, their, their, their power, and then others kind of spread it throughout the voltage range. And so... Where you set that may be battery dependent, but 3.6, I was flying, it went off, I landed, I was like, well, it wasn't a hugely long flight time. For the next battery, I threw it up with the setting at 3.5, and it started going off, and by the time I got to the ground and then looked at my batteries, I was still, you know, floating at 3.7. So that was that voltage sag when the motor was running. So... I may I may with those batteries, and I may have to test what batteries do what, uh, but with those old Targus batteries, I may have to mm-hmm. set the alert at like three, two, three, three, and yeah, I, I trust usually set, that they're going to sag, especially with the glider. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I usually set mine, especially with the glider at three, three, because I, I know that it doesn't take full throttle to kind of, kind of glide it back in under power. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas like if it was a warbird, I'd probably put it back at three, five. Cause at three, five, you're, you're about to run out of power to keep it aloft and mm-hmm. it'll, it'll be a rough dead stick. If, <laughs> if you don't have a little bit of power, <laughs> um, gliders don't need nearly as much. So yeah, it's a, that's a good plan. So it was a nice day when I went flying. Um, I felt a few thermals. I don't think the plane was trimmed out right. Um, it was its maiden flight. It's been a while since I've flown anyway. I really hadn't flown gliders much. Mm-hmm. So anytime I cut the power, she just wanted to tank. So right. I'm thinking I I had her, you know, trim nose down and no matter, because I give her throttle and then she'd fly level. So right. Anyway. My experience has been, and I, maybe it's that plane um, and I'm at the time I was pretty inexperienced, but basically I would trim it for, was it power off level flight? But I knew that I had to, to do nearly full stick with the power on. And I would basically have to do like 
active stick while I'm while the throttle was was on. But then when I got up to glide, I could cut the throttle and let my hands off the stick and it would glide even in level. Sure, but I mean at that point they tell you you should be putting in some degrees of down thrust. Yeah. Or down angle on your motor to compensate for that high lift wing. Yeah. I'm I'm not going to talk about the efficacy of uh my build at the time. <laughs> but just let's say that that worked in that I could then glide hands free. And I think that I felt that that was more important. Either that or I could retrim it so that it would fly level with the power on. But every time I turned the power off, I'd have to be on hands on control. Hey, let's, let's just recognize that this was the first time I've taken a glider out. That wasn't yours. Flown it. <laughs> And brought it back home. <laughs> In one piece. Well, technically two, but because well, I took the wing off. Well, yeah. I mean, but that's a that's by design. I mean, it, yeah. it came back the way it went up. That's right. And <laughs> I I had a couple successful flights. I flew I flew two or three flights on the first mm-hmm. battery and had a, a second battery that I just flew straight through. Yeah. Um there were just a 1303 cells, so they don't um, need to be large to have a good time. Now, how long were you able to fly on that 1300? Not long, honestly, because I didn't have it trimmed well. So, oh, so you always I had found, a little throttle on. I was usually at at least half throttle. Okay. Um, so really I got I probably I got probably less than foggy flight times. Well um, fully, dude, okay, you can't compare that. I mean, I, I guess you could can. you should compare gliders <laughs> to fogies. However, if it's your first flight and you're you're kind of running a decent amount of throttle, that's not entirely a fair comparison. Yeah. That's all. But anyway, so uh, I need to get that out and fly some more. But the second weekend, we had the hurricane come through. So I wasn't going to mm-hmm. say, I won't go out flying in that. Yeah, um, we, that, was, that would be a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> that's the, that's the not, because it was like, what, 35 or 40 mile an hour winds on average? Uh, at, yeah, at least. And probably a little bit more when it was down there with you. Yep. We, we had some decent, I mean, we had the, you know, green leaves everywhere, kind of debris across the town, but yeah, you know, nothing, nothing too major went on. Now yeah. I will say that, um, during that second week I pulled out the, um, FT tiny trainer mm. kit and started oh. building it. Oh Yeah. So I've got the fuselage built for that and the push rods inserted. I've not put the horizontal vertical stab on it. I've not built the wing yet, but it has started. Okay. But I also then have to order in uh, an F-Pack equivalent motor in ESE. Mm-hmm. I need to get a smaller battery to fit in that. Uh, thirteen. Then, well, the 1300 might, might do well for that. Mm, I'm not sure. I'll check. Yeah, I'll check the footprint. But um, I mean, look, it, if you want another set of batteries, really don't let me deter you from that. <laughs> uh, it's well, not a bad a of, idea to have a set of batteries for that size of plane. I'm, I'm running a fair number of four cells at this point. I'm kind of oh. low on my, my my three cell count. Okay. Um, but yeah, and then that's that's about it. That's not just about it. That, that's a lot of that's a lot of stuff going on there, bud. Eh, 
relative to what I'd normally have going on. But hold on, I okay, go ahead. <laughs> no, you go ahead. That's no, I was going to transition to you. I was going to talk about that beautiful picture you took. Oh, uh, well, before we do, I, I want to say I hope everybody in Florida and in the path of Ian uh, has made it through the hurricane safely. And uh, well, hopefully we'll be getting back to the normal everyday flying condition uh, <laughs> that uh, Ian had probably made it impossible to do for a little while. So I hope everybody's yeah. safe. Florida, Florida's going to some time recovering that was it wasn't it wasn't kind but it's no. not as bad as some have been so i really? don't know uh it depends on which which hurricane you know what i mean and where you were i know uh, i have a cousin down there near uh, tampa bay who is like yeah and we're all right um but some places were hit harder than others so that's uh, the flooding that really jacked them up yeah always it's always the way. That's what happens around here. The flooding did far more damage than any of the wind or any of the storm part did. Mm -hmm. So, well, anyway, my point is just, you know, we're, we're thinking of you and we, we hope you guys get back to operating conditions, uh, you know, soon. Mm -hmm. uh, that said, what did I do? Let's see. I built in the build night and I made incredibly slow progress for the rest of the <laughs> next couple of <laughs> weeks. Um, so I continue to work on the... Um, on the LEDs that I was put, trying to put in, and I was trying to put in the multicolor lights in the tail, and I apparently the soldering job was too close, and every time I moved those, it'd create like a short circuit, and I was worried I was going to blow out another controller. You know, I, I busted up the first one so that only one okay. color was coming through. I'm like, okay, I can't do that. Like, I need to have this one working. And it's admittedly, it's not like my favorite controller because it's it's kind of limited capacity, but mm -hmm. the cool part is I can still change to the colors and I can still do the, the rolling fade and the blinking and all that kind of stuff. So it's like, okay, well that that's enough where if I'm trying to go, what in the world's going on? I like hopefully catch the, whatever the sensor and get it to change colors so I could see it better at night if, if I need to. Um, I'd, I'm, I'm hoping to be able to find a way to get the commands through like a Bluetooth module or not a Bluetooth, uh, like using the PWM signal to go directly to the controller. Yeah, I was going to say, can't it like interface with the iBus or something? I would love to say yeah, but I don't know anything about the controller to be able to tell. Uh, okay. At least not yet. Um, anyway, but I got everything wired up, and I felt like I was wiring like a car. I had like this giant long wire harness with like multi-lengths, different connectors at each end. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And they were like partially wrapped and then, then little pieces would stick off at a different point and then they'd be wrapped <laughs> over there in bundles. And it was just like, oh my God, what's going on? I had a, I have a four point junction for the multicolor stuff. And I'm like, the RGB lights, I'm like, oh, this is crazy. But uh, I plugged it all in carefully and it all worked. So and it I, looks good. And it looks, and I started putting hot glue on, on, on those open things. So that way it kind of protected electrically. Um, and give it a little bit of strain relief if I needed it. And then I, yeah, so the front edge of the of the main wing, which is that eight and a half foot massive cord thickness wing, um, is multicolor. The white, I have white shining behind, which I'm going to cover in red ultra coat, top and bottom. And then okay. I worked on, and, and that's what I worked on later in the week, is I worked on the side 
directional lights. So I've got red and green with white behind to put in the wings. So I've got to mount that to some foam board and kind of stuff it in the wing ends, the wing tips. Um, and then all I have to do is I'll just, I'll just have to connect it to the white uh, power cord. So once that, the white LED goes out to the end, I have like a little like JST2, like a little mini micro JST connector, and I just hook it up. And then that'll, that'll connect the end, light ends to the main strings that go out from the center. Um, the front edge of that is the multicolor, which is on the RGB unit, so I can actually change the color of the front edge of the wing. That isn't covered at all. I'm, I'm going to use, you know, uh, like either a laminate, like a clear laminate, or a, just regular packing tape. Um, and then the main fuse is just a white string that's kind of literally run along the bottom. And so it lights up the whole fuse white from the wing section back to the tail. The tail itself, um, I want to do the RGB, and that's where I said I was running into like potentially short-circuiting because it would kind of come on and come off, and then it wouldn't work properly. The controller wouldn't work properly, and I was like, uh-oh, what did I do? Um, and then I reconnected it without that, and everything started to work right. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm just going to leave that off. Uh, and then so I just put in a blue strip because I had some blue LEDs that are just the same 12-volt stuff, and I just hardwired that in. Um, and, and I connected to the end of the white, so that's easy to just easy, uh, connect and disconnect. Uh, so that's in and that's ready. Um, and then putting, put them all together next to each other. And then I put a little RGB, uh, string that's not as bright in the nose section. So the nose will light up whatever color the front edge of the wing is. Um, so it should look really sharp. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, at this point, I, I'm like, okay, that's done. LEDs are done. I've got to mount the the tip LEDs to some foam and reflectors and put them in the wing, and I've got to cover the wing. And then so I'm like, well, what am I going to cover it with? And I've had this idea of, like, I looked at Ultra Coat, and for twenty dollars a roll, or even if you get it cheap at what fifteen dollars a roll, with a nine foot plane, that's a lot of money. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, com- considering what it's like 12 or $15 worth of foam, I've got about $60 worth of covering. You know what I mean? Or maybe right. maybe $20, $40 dollars worth of covering. It's more than the plane is, you know? Um, so I'm like, all right. Uh, is there another way that I could cover this that would be cheaper? And I looked at this press and seal stuff at the store, which is the saran wrap. With, with basically, it looks like a Super 77, but just one-sided. And now I know that based on how I tack my plans down and pull them back up after I'm done cutting, like Super 77 on one side with a moderate coat leaves a tacky surface that you can then peel up. I'm like, what if I, what if I take Super 77 and spray the foam and then put the saran wrap down carefully and kind of like taut and then just just gently press it down so it doesn't have wrinkles and then just use it. Be really careful about the heat, just trying to find out what the right heat is and then basically press it down and do a little bit of heat shrink. And all of a sudden that stuff should be tight as a drum. Now the Saran wrap is thinner than the ultra coat. Ultra coat's just like a little bit thicker. So it's stiffer and it acts like a standard shrinky dink kind of plastic where uh, it's got an adhesive, a, a, what a pressure induced or 
pressure sensitive adhesive. So once you put the iron on and a little bit of heat, it contacts and glues down. And then the next heat level, you go a little bit hotter. And then the, the plastic of the ultra coat starts to shrink. And that's where it starts to tighten up like a drum. Right. Hmm. And so that's how, how that works. And almost all plastics actually work like that. It's just trying to figure out what heat level and where you're like, what level your heat, uh, your adhesive activates and at what heat level your plastic starts to to deform. It sometimes it like loosens, it kind of gets wrinkly, and then a little bit more and it starts to shrink. If you've ever done a shrinky dink, literally just watch this process and you're like, oh, that's what happens. Um, so it's kind of doing I mean, that. We used, we used to do um, heat shrink while we were, when I worked at Staples years and years ago. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. just heads hot, good, and you blew. Yeah, and I was gonna say it's probably the same way where you get it like it's it's kind of set up and then it sort of like warbles uh, before it starts to shrink down and get tight, right? A bit, yeah. Yeah. So that's the same thing that happens there. So once you're almost at that right heat level, it's gonna kind of do this like kind of wavy warble thing, and then a little bit more, a little bit hot, just a hair hotter, and it's gonna start to shrink and it'll start tightening up. Um, and that's where you want to make sure that your structure behind it is stiff. Um, that it's not going to start to warp on you. Um, whether that be like make sure it's tacked down to a, a firm surface or pin it down or whatever it is, or if it's already sturdy enough. Because once it starts to, that that plastic, though hot, it's kind of malleable. Once it starts to shrink in, it, it, it may tend to warp your wing. <coughs> so you want to be careful with that. Anyway, so I tested that. UltraCoat, uh, I basically cut a piece of foam and I, I cut out a couple holes. Um, I just pulled the ultra coat down like I told, and I used the iron and all that stuff, and it went down well. It stuck well, and once that window, uh, that section, st- I tightened it up. Like it, I, I got the heat where it started to warble, and then I did a little bit more, and it tightened up, and it's like drum tight, and it's tight. It's not going to go anywhere. So And it's smooth, and it looks great. So I know that the main wing section is to look wonderful. And the other thing is I wanted to use the saran wrap on the side of the wing, uh, side of the plane because I wanted it to be kind of see-through but like uh, opaque, not opaque, translucent. So I wanted some of that white to come through, but I didn't want it to be like completely clear. Um, so I'm going to do the Super 77 and the saran wrap on the sides of the, the fuselage. And I'm just going to be okay. real careful and see how that goes, see if I can get that on smooth. I want to do the tail the same way because the blue – I don't want it to mesh with the with the red and make like this purple. I I want it to keep the blue, and I'll probably use a saran wrap. Either that, or um, I might even just do clear tape, unless I can find like a book covering laminate. So uh, I'm at that last stage where once I cover it up, I mean it's it's a matter of putting a uh, battery and I, and I'm also looking at my motors and I'm realizing the hub for my folding prop is perfectly sized for the shaft of the motor but the that's not how i connect the prop the prop doesn't go around the shaft of the motor it gets bolted onto the front with the like the twi- the the screwed on spinner okay and that shaft is of thickness like two millimeters thicker so the shaft i have for the original folding prop hub is not big enough 
Oh, no. <laughs> so, I don't know. I'll see what I can. I think I have a prop that might actually fit that size, and I think it's like a 15-inch or a 14-inch or something like that, which would be fun. That's still plenty big. To move that plane, I know it doesn't seem like it, but I'm pretty certain that it, it's a one and a half, and as we'll learn later, it's one and a half kilograms, so it's almost four pounds. And so I need um, a prop that'll that'll do maybe like, you know, five or six pounds of uh, thrust and a 12-inch 12, a 12 prop, like a 12 by 8 or 12 by 6, is going to pull six pounds to eight pounds of thrust, which mm. is more than enough for the glider. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not worried. I'm, I'm sure I'll find something. Uh, I've got the motor mount set up ready. I've got both motors ready. Um, once I can find a prop that'll fit on it. And if I have to, I'll just go down to my local shop and see what they have. And maybe they can help me, you know, find a solution to the problem. Okay. Which is part of what they're for. Um, <clears throat> so shout out to Alan. Thanks. Alan <laughs> Hayes. Hey, zombie. Whoop, whoop. All right. <laughs> uh, look, he always takes care of me. And when, and when he can't, he tries to help me out finding the solution that I can use that day, you know? That's right. Yeah, it's pretty good. Um, yeah. So uh, that's, that's getting close. Um, and I'm hoping, uh, I'm looking at this weekend coming up. I, I may be able to have a little bit of time to do the covering this week. Um, so I'm hoping that this weekend I'll be able to get out and fly. Um, I know my son is going on a Boy Scout camping trip. So my young guy is, it's just going to be him and I, so we, we might be able to get out and have a, a good time for a while. Nice. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. So with any luck, cross the fingers, uh, that'll be in the sky this weekend. Okay. Um, anything else on that front? Uh, as far as what I've been doing, no. Okay. Uh, waking up at 520 or 530 or whatever to try to help my son catch a bus that r- routinely gets earlier and earlier in the morning uh, has been just <laughs> killing any productivity I might have had. <laughs> yeah, well, there's been a couple mornings I've called you, thinking, "Well, maybe he won't." Nope, you're awake. Oh, I'm awake. I've been up. I've been up for hours now. <laughs> at that point. Yeah. Um, also, I've been working some on the website, trying to get, uh, trying to rearrange some of the landing parts of the site and getting, uh, getting some articles in there. And what I'm, and so I apologize if you see it and you go, "What in the world is going on?" It's uh, me trying to figure out how. Um, some yeah. of our automated processes are grabbing things that get posted, um, and learning how to connect all the parts and pieces together appropriately. So bear with I me. To... Um, I'm Joe and I haven't had a chance to really sit down together cause Joe, you know, better how stuff works. That's all computer. Uh, I, I knew some of it at some point. Um, sure. But me I'll too. You, I am. I am looking at maybe what? No, I am looking at um, when we're done recording. Why don't we um, why don't we go ahead and work on that a little bit? Okay, if you're feeling up for it, uh, and we we can spend a few minutes. If on we it. can't, uh, I will say yes because if we don't make it tonight, it'll probably be tomorrow, and I'll probably have a lot more time <laughs> then, and I'll be more bushy tailed. Yeah, be good. Right. Yeah, I, I, I'm looking forward to that because again, I have a couple of ideas that I think would help our listeners navigate um, and find. And then part of what I'm doing is creating content that 
supports the podcast. Mm -hmm. It's the visuals that go with what we talked about and then kind of laying it out in a way that should be easy to digest. So I hope it helps. Yeah. Well, when we're done tonight, um, I'll switch rigs and we'll, we'll work on it a bit. Um, if we can. Let's go into some community things for a few minutes, yeah. and then I'll let you rip on uh, the two right. main topics. So, community community build nights. Matt and I sat down, and we have, for October, planned the build night, and then for November, uh, November and December are largely tentative november's pretty solid uh as like the one weekend we can both link up mm -hmm. and then december is extremely tentative at this point but we want to go ahead and like start putting these ideas out there um so that folks can as we're moving into the holiday season can you know make some plans and say oh i can be there for that or i can't and it's not matt and i going oh yeah by the way this coming friday when this goes out we're building <laughs> hey by the way i want i want to thank our community for those who do go hey they're we're doing a build night nice and then they show up and and join us and have a good time we've we've had some really good build nights despite mm -hmm. it being last minute so i want to thank all you guys who decided to join us last minute um i appreciate it it's it's been a good good building and for those of you who haven't it's worth checking out yeah and for those of you who have it, here are the potential future dates. Uh, October 22nd, the, that's going to be our Saturday build. So this will be 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. Eastern Daylight Eastern, Time. Well, we're about to switch over. So, yeah, Eastern Daylight, I think, is good for the first one. And it's just regular Eastern Standard Time for the well, rest. We should, yeah. Ooh, excuse me. Um, so it's Eastern Time, whatever we're currently in. Um <laughs> 11 to 2 p.m., 11 a.m. to 2 p.m., October 22nd. Now, getting into a little more tentative, November 4th is a Friday. Um, basically, all the other weekends, you and I had stuff going on, so that's sort of the one mutual open weekend. Mm -hmm. November 4th, Friday, 8 to 11 p.m. is when we're looking to do that one. And then uh, these move into the very tentative slots, uh, December 2nd. Is a Friday, uh, eight to eleven p.m. Yeah, um, that's right at the beginning of December. Still a ways away from holidays, since we're doing one at the beginning of November. That'll probably be the best way to do that one. And then maybe uh, we're looking at December thirty-first as a New Year's countdown uh, build to the ball drops kind of thing, um, Eastern Standard Time or Eastern Time. Okay, so. Uh, those are four nights potentially laid out there. So if you can make them awesome, um, would love to have some, have some of you guys that hadn't gone out to one or hadn't been to one in a while, uh, come on out and then looking forward to seeing our regulars. Yeah. Um, Matt, you'd asked me to have a look and, and you're right. We've had quite a few comments lately. So I, I do want to go through a couple of those if you don't have anything on the build party front. Uh, no, I mean, no, just you, you cover the stuff we need to talk about on the build party. Other than last time we got together, it was awesome. I'm glad you got to come in and join in. Um, there was a, a handful of, uh, fresh faces, which was great to see, um, meeting some of the names that have recently popped up and getting to meet them in person. Um, and there's been some pretty active building even in between, which is great. I'm looking mm -hmm. forward to seeing more of that. 
What are some guys building uh, before we hopped in here? Absolutely. So. Yeah, I wish I could have spent more time with them. It's just one of those, this is one of those busy, busy, busy nights. Yeah. Yeah, they happen. Yeah, they do. All right. So moving into um, community comments, listener feedback. Um, One, we hadn't touched in a while, but we did have another iTunes review. I want to take a second and thank uh, Panzer for writing that. He said, I love the podcast, especially the aviation history. Parentheses. Even though you guys get things wrong sometimes. Whoa, wait, what? Yeah. But please stop calling a biplane a bi-wing. It drives me nuts. Joe, would you stop? See ya. That, excuse me, sir. <laughs> that is 100% you. What are you saying? Come on. That is all you, and it must be you that's wrong in the history segments, because I don't know what he's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> look we've we've kind of written the the history segments with like <laughs> uh the unwritten um said uh, the unwritten rule is we apologize ahead of time for all of the errors we're going to make <laughs> please bear with us and just take it for the spirit um <laughs> we try to do so, our best to get it right but you know look yeah. our intent is to help you get excited about the crafty build and here's like if we're wrong let us know yeah. Um. Sometimes, sad though it is, sometimes the history segment is literally Matt and I saying, flipping coin, who's got it tonight? All right, you know, quickly run and throw <laughs> some notes together. Yeah. Um. I mean, each of us have been thinking about different planes and looking some stuff up, and it's like, oh, oh, uh, let me pull the notes together on that. Like, you know, sometimes it's that way. Sometimes we have it, you know. We Yeah, they... Like when we did the Spitfire, and I know the Corsair, and I think when you did the Tiger Cat, like there was mm-hmm. some, there's definitely some planes we've had along the way. But if you ever notice something that we've said that's incorrect, please let us know because we'll address it on the next episode to say, Absolutely. here's where, you know, we were potentially wrong, and here's, uh, you know, what's, and, and we'll probably check it to say, well, is that the case? Sure. But um, if we're wrong, let us know um, so we can make it right. Yep. Um, other things, uh, Yankee, uh, two comments from him. Uh, first off, he said, it's a, it's not a pink shirt. It's salmon. <laughs> Talking about Mike in the <laughs> salmon shirt. Yeah. Sorry, Mike. It is. It was a salmon shirt. I just thought it'd be easier to call it a pink shirt. And I tell you what, when the, in the, Temperature frazzled mind of our flight fest excitement. Uh, that's how my brain translated it. it. The weather wasn't bad. It just got chilly at night. It wasn't like it was yeah, overly but, hot. Yeah, but I don't know. I was, we were running around and I was drinking water and I, I really, we, we could have brought more. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? It just, I, I was surprised at just how quick uh, I needed to be rehydrated. Yeah. Well, it was also very dry. So, mm-hmm. and that's pretty I, I normal though. It. You know, like that's, that's normal. <laughs> Welcome to flight fest. <laughs> uh, not, not my first year. It was a wet. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So the, his other comment is, um, basically asking if, if it's too early for us to be picking out next year's flight fest, uh, build community build. Uh, to which I would say, no, it's not. 
Uh, he was calling it the the ARC and gaggle bill for Fly Fest 2023, and I'd say no, it's not. Uh, but Matt and I haven't, you know, put a finger on one yet. So, no, if you guys have any ideas. thoughts about what you'd like to uh, throw the throw the name of a plane in into the hat to be considered? Let us know. Okay. If there's if there's a plane that you guys say, man, that'd be awesome if we all came together and built some of those. You know, throw throw that throw that plane in the hat. We'll have yeah. a look at it and um, you know see what we can do. Um, other than that, so in the Discord, uh, show comments, Tench let us know, uh, he said, I want to share a bit on thermals, this would be in regards to our gliding episode, he said, I have a friend who taught hang gliding for a living for over 15 years, here's some information I've gleaned in my talks with him over the years, picture a pot of water heating on the stove, as the heat accumulates, Little bubbles form on the bottom of the pot at places known as nucleation sites. As the water heats more, those bubbles grow until they are buoyant enough to break free from the bottom of the pot and they rise to the surface. If you watch closely, you'll see that the bubbles expand uh, while it rises because the water pressure decreases as you go upwards. At first, only one or two bubbles release and it takes some time for the next one to form uh, where the last came from. As temperature increases further, the bubbles release and reform faster until eventually they stream upwards in almost a steady column. This is exactly how thermals behave. They are bubbles of warmer air which form at nucleation sites, places where there is either something to heat the air or a surface feature which allows that warm air to form slash collect there. As the day goes on and the sun feeds more energy into the system, those bubbles release faster and faster. If there's enough energy, you can get an almost constant column of lift. And just like the bubbles in a pot, sometimes you can make a thermal release by poking it. My friend told of a story of a guy who saw a bunch of pilots were going to have to land early in a competition as they were coming into the warm, sun-baked landing field. The guy ran through the field waving his arms and kicking up dust, which released a huge thermal and let those pilots get high enough to finish the course. Another point about thermals and bubbles, when they release, they tend to follow nearby objects as they climb. So if you're in a big city, uh, sorry, if you're in a big empty field with a tree somewhere, any thermal that releases will probably either originate at the tree or make its way towards the tree as it releases. Wow. That's a lot of information. I had never... But that's a great, great way to visualize it. It is. If, if the bubble aspect is accurate i don't see why it wouldn't be it's the same it's fluid dynamics just with with a pot you can see it with a pot of water sure but yeah but when you're talking water you've got surface tension so that's only at the top that's the bubbles are still forming the same way at the base sure but i mean what what causes the bubble to break free why doesn't the bubble just Way to rise. That's uh, interaction with the water. Well, it's. I mean, they're two different. So as the as the air heats, I'm trying to think of why the why the bubbles form. The I don't think the molecules are falling uh, apart. I don't know. This is too late for me to think about right, this stuff. The but, bubbles are, the bubbles are forming because you're not boiling oxygen out of the water. You're literally 
steaming up gas, the water. Gas in the water. Yeah, you're turning the water is. into right. a gaseous state. Which has less, it's lower density, but it's surrounded by water enough. And then, again, it's still the same, effectively it's the same stuff. And as, they, as the column gets enough volume to be buoyant compared to its surroundings, it lifts and it's able to pull away from its its base. It it lifts up and then the water surrounding kind of comes in around it. I'm gonna have to look into that. I mean, it's it's the same fluid I mean, dynamics no matter which way you shake it. It's just it takes different form. Like it's much bigger, it's much wider because the the medium is less dense, mm. and that's about it. I mean, I can see how that could how that could be accurate. I just want to. Mm-hmm. That's not my understanding of like, while water and fluids connect that way, and I understand that gas is basically a fluid for all intents and purposes. That's just not how I think of um, of air working. Um, well, I mean, he continued up the next day. It was thereafter. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, he said uh, when a thermal rises, it is a bubble of rising air. Uh, something that has to fill the area where the bubble came from. So the nearby air goes rushing in towards the base of the thermal. This is why gusty winds will almost always point toward point you toward uh, the base of the thermal. By depending, uh, But depending on how big the bubble was and how much energy is in the area, the thermal may be gone by the time you get there. This is why it's very helpful, helpful to launch into a thermal because you can ride this bubble of rising air and then try to scratch around to try to fund uh, for one that may be or may not be there anymore. Um, there's obviously like way more to know, but that's all I can bring to mind um, and arrange in a meaningful way at the minute. Well, again, a, a beneficial contribution to the conversation. As a great. Mm-hmm. I just. <sighs> I'm going to want to go look and see if the, the bubble aspect with atmosphere is the thing. Okay. Because, again, it, it, in my mind, it's just a steady column. But, again, I can see how mm. that would be. So, it's, it's just something worth double-checking. Um, It feels like you're in a big speed hump. Is what it feels like when you're in a plane. Well, sure. You hit a thermal when you're in a plane and you're flying through an updraft. Well, that's the same thing you're doing on with a glider. Literally, yeah. it's exactly the same thing you're doing. It's yeah, I know. I'm just saying you're not you like flying a plane into it. You wouldn't know if it's a column or a bubble. Okay. Okay. Well, it's they're, worth they're looking both into. Gonna, they're both going to feel the same. Um. Sure. Yeah, I mean, it'd be really cool if you could kind of uh, color the different air masses <laughs> so you could see it. That'd be awesome. But right. uh, really, the best thing you can do is like hope to catch a foggy day, maybe. there's. I'm sure there's periods of the day where like there's a little bit of visualization. I'm mm. sure it's really hard to catch. It'd have to be like a semi-misty, you know. That'd be weird because by by the time that the ground heats up enough. Yeah, the, the mist to, is gone. To... Yeah, because the sun's got to burn the mist off to be able to penetrate to the ground. Right, to heat it up to be able to send it. Yeah, I wonder if there's like maybe like if there was a thermal mass over top of, uh, for example, like a hot spring. But like the the air is fine and it has mist, 
but the air mass above the thermal spring is obviously hotter and possibly doing that motion. And it'd be interesting to see if it's blurps and bubbles or a steady column. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying. I love it. Yeah, I don't know. Hey, if anybody knows of like a video to see or like has seen it themselves, let us know, man. I'm curious. And and thank you very much, Tench, uh, Brian, for sending that in. That was a really cool way to visualize it and think about it. If it isn't maybe, let's say, technically all 100% exactly what's happening, that way to think about it certainly gets you to be able to get your glider on a thermal a lot better or at least understand how they're kind of happening enough to, to be able to use it to be gliding further. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in the, in the in-between, I'll probably look into it to see Yeah, well, then know, I, whether it's a steady column or bubbles. Yeah, it'd be cool. Well, now I, that's going that's to drive you batty. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know sometimes when I've flown into a thermal, I've watched my plane almost get kicked out. Like it like hit a wall, literally. And just like yeah. I almost flip right up. And I know maybe it's just because it hit like a really good wave kind of deal, like at the edge of the bubble, or like maybe it is in fact a straight column of air. So that'd be curious what you find out. Again, e- either way would would it would have the same reaction. It would act that way regardless. Okay. But anyway, enough harping on that. I'll find out for sure. Sure. Uh, not that I, not that I doubt Tincha's friend who did that for a living, and I'm the amateur. Just that's not how it worked in my head. So I got I got to look into it. All right. So I guess that brings us around to some of the latest FAA news, as it were. Uh, okay. Some of it really isn't going to be news. Um, it, it was news to me specifically. Um, I was helping out one of our friends of the podcast, um, trying to understand exactly like because the rule, I mean, technically it's not going into effect for the manufacturing of remote ID units as part of the kit or part of the complete unit, right? Manufacturers have to start, um, you know, making, uh, remote ID units integrated into the product that they sell, right? Like that's the rule that has been postponed till December 16th. Um, there are kind of, I'll call it limitations to it or boundaries to when, who has to and who doesn't. And then where the um, culpability is on, you know, who has the remote ID unit, right? Um, and I wanted to understand that and make sure I understood it properly because um, right now, um, nobody needs to. But in short order, manufacturers are going to need to be including it. But which manufacturers, right? So does that include flight tests? Does that include, you know, the Hangar RC or the Squadron, you know, 13th Squadron? I mean, they produce plans and they, they're not producing kits per se, but they're definitely part of the hobby. Do they need to do that? Or is it limited to people like Horizon Hobby who are creating... And which, which Horizon Hobby products need to comply, right? Because not all of them may need to. Um, right. So we started kind of going down that rabbit hole um, and s- trying to figure out, like, who, like who's part of that. Um, and I think what we kind of came down to is um, I, I'm, I will have a link – 
I don't have my phone on me, and that's where all the information is. So, um, where's well, your phone? My phone is downstairs, wasting away. I'm certain. I thought you went down earlier and got it. I went down to do other things and get this piece of paper that has all the other information. <laughs> um, it's actually uh, ECFR, uh, the the Code of Federal Regulations uh, regarding Part 91, which is General Operations and Flight Rules, which includes unmanned aerial vehicles, which this is kind of a subsection to, and, you know, kind of getting into the nitty gritty. There is a link, but it's not through the ways I was, I was, I was trying to refine that link because I could get into it. Um, but basically, uh, I also went through the Freedom, FPV Freedom Coalition. I actually have a really good resource section uh, that talks about the rule summaries and what you like what you need to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. Um, and they really kind of break down that 450 page uh, rule summary is how the FAA calls it. And they, they love to point to that 450 page rule summary. It's like, but if you go to the code of federal regulations, it's maybe 20 pages of code. You know what I mean? And while it's mm-hmm. written in a Greek like language, um, legalese as it were, um, or technically legal um, language, legal jargon, Le- legal jargon, which is not English. Um, but it, it, but it reads similar, uh, deceivingly similar. Um, it, you can follow it and you can make heads or tails of it. Um, and so what we were looking at is to see like, where's that line? And it seems to me, and I, and I'm, again, that's where I wanted to have the actual like language in front of me, um, is, um, I don't have the the appropriate language that I would probably need to look up to be able to find it. But basically, what we learned was if you are uh, manufacturing a complete kit, then you need to manufacture the remote ID unit as part of that complete kit. The complete kit cannot be missing any parts, though. So if if you are not supplying... Uh, receiver, or you're not supplying the transmitter, if you're not supplying, you know, maybe it's not fully finished. It's just a balsa kit with maybe all the parts you need. Maybe it's got the motor and the SC, but it doesn't actually have all the radio components. Like that is not a complete kit. That is a kit um, designed for um, uh, designed for what is that called? Home-built unmanned aircraft. A home-built un, un, home-built unmanned aircraft, that's in quotes, that's the direct term, is defined by the FAA as, quote, an unmanned aircraft that an individual built solely for education or recreation, end quote. A home-built unmanned aircraft is not subject to design or production requirements of the producer as long as there's some level of assembly by the end user, which means... I read that as all the flight test kits and any, anything that, you know, any of the foam board kits, any of the That's balsa kits that aren't put together. If it's like cut balsa and you've got to put it together, guess what? You are now being the home built unmanned aircraft um, builder, which would be uh, f- solely for education or recreation. Again, these rules are set for recreational use when you, when it's no longer purely for recreational use, you are now in part 107 and that's a different rule set. Mm -hmm. It's not part 91. It's part 107. 
Um, and then that, that's, that's where you get into, like, if you're making money at it or doing it for something that is not recreation or education, that's, that's what that's for, right? If it's for entertainment, um, example, uh, copy, let's see, example, company A provides a recreational ready to fly quadcopter that does not include the, an RF receiver because the kit is incomplete. The company is not subject to the design or production requirements because the quadcopter was built for either education or recreation, the end user is not subject to the design or production requirements. The operator, however, is required to comply with the remote ID rules above, which is basically you are agreeing as a recreational user that you will provide either operate it in a FRIA, a federally regulated, um, now I can't find it, what's that called? Because I need to know what it is. Um, <laughs> oh my God, it's right here. Oh, you're, I can never remember what it's. I can never remember. For. It's, uh, it's uh, basically a, the, <laughs> oh God, this is terrible. Oh, I failed. I failed everybody. So okay, a federally recognized identification area. So basically, these are yeah. areas that will be on a map that like there's people who fly here uh, recreationally for for model use you know, or education. Um, so the, the FRIA, um, you either operate in a FRIA, you have a remote ID unit that's baked in, or you provide a, a remote ID unit that is linked to your registration with the FAA. And so as the sole, as the builder of, as the home builder, you're going to be providing either a remote ID unit that's, that you have, so it'll be a standalone unit mm -hmm. or it will be, you'll have to operate in Ephria. Okay. Now talking, uh, listening to some stuff that Dave Messina was talking about. He's one of the presidents of the, I think he's the president of the FPV freedom coalition. He was talking to Josh, uh, Josh Bardwell on one of his, uh, the weekly shows or, or one of the highlight shows where he's kind of, they were, they were specifically talking about this kind of stuff as it was coming out. Um, he specifically talked about, they talked about like, well, how much is it going to cost? Right. And right now, some of the estimates are on the order of about $200. Um, because it's got to be profitable. You only make, make so many of them. Um, you know, the research and design to make the actual stuff to go through the rules to actually all the time spent to get it through the regulations and get it approved and accepted by the FA and registered, et cetera, et cetera. So all that time and energy used to do that is going to probably drive the cost of a probably $50 unit, like the technical $50 that it might take to build one. It'll probably be a lot more to buy one. Hmm. The good news is as a recreational flyer, you only need one. Um, as a part 107, you will need one for every drone used in the that operation. And because I would like to get my 107 and operate my Phantom, mm -hmm. I will need one for my Part 107 Phantom. You will. And one for my hobby. I believe so. One as a recreational flyer that you can then move from unit to unit. And then one for that Phantom unit, which you can go and redesignate. So if you're like a model reviewer, you can have the remote ID unit and designate it, and then you can go into your 
your FA site number and re-register that remote ID unit to a new drone in the appropriate way. Make sure you label it, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so your point. And then, so in in that sense, where you there, you're kind of one of those people who makes money reviewing um, aircraft or drones. Mm-hmm. That's a way you can continue to do it without having to spend two hundred dollars every time you get one, or whatever the cost ends up being. I say two hundred dollars because I remember we, that's what I heard. I was like, "Well, that's that's what I anticipated." Um, mm-hmm. and, but I was hoping it would be that where it's like a one-time expense, generally speaking, unless you're essentially unless you're making money off of um, flying, you know, flying drones. Um, so with that, now that may not entirely be news. That was just kind of what I don't know. It brought me down the rabbit hole, right? I started getting to like, okay, what is this nitty gritty? Because again, I wanted to make sure that, you know, that we'll still be able to buy kits or at least when we do, we know where the responsibilities lie on complying mm-hmm. with this future rule. I mean, currently it's the actual rule, but when it, when it comes into effect at the end of December 16th, uh, sorry, September 16th, 2023 is when the recreational users will have to comply. Um, so the other half, the one thing that isn't out there yet, and this is, uh, I've been approached by a friend of mine who works with the school system. She's a science teacher. She loves STEM. That's what she loves to do. She's working with a couple other community organizations like a local church who wants to put on a program that's a drone program. Like we're going to, we're going to buy a bunch of these small drones like Phantoms and teach kids how to use them so they can operate them. Right. Educational outreach, that kind of stuff. And I'm like, okay, do these, does this church know? And part of it is just because they want to get the community in and bring them into the church and kind of grow, uh, grow some of their numbers and, you know, just generally be a better active member of the community. Mm -hmm. But I'm like, I don't, do they know what the rules are currently? Cause I mean, like they're currently changing. Like, does anybody really know? And I'm like, um, in a little bit, it's going to be nearly impossible. I said, not to say that they should stop, but I'm happy to be part of that. But I said, what I would like to also do is work with you to work with the schools to start getting schools designated as free is because that's going to be process. And so right now there's no, like they say, oh, you have to be part of part of a CBO, a community-based organization, or flying under the rules of a CBO. And, and then it ended like, and then that CBO has to then apply for a FRIA by designating their whatever it is. And then, and then there's that line of like, well, this is what you need to provide. And it's like, okay, well, what is all that stuff? Right. Um, so I wanted to figure out like, what is the CBO and it hasn't been designated yet. That's one of flight test big complaints. Every time they're like, well, dude, nobody knows what it is. Like, how can we get this done and make sure we can fly and comply if we don't have a way to do it, right? Where there's no mechanism yet. So right. uh, through that, uh, through some of the uh, the federal regulations and then looking at the Freedom Coalition and then talking to some people on the flight test forums, and one of the guys was like, well, I happen to notice that there was this new advisory circular as a draft um, being issued, um, and it is... Advisory Circular 9-1, that's, the, that's pertaining to the title that it's based on, 
91-57C. Um, and it's so 51, uh, 57B is what's currently out there. And that's what's, it's basically an amendment or clarification to the existing rules under part 91. And it identifies things that aren't really quite so clear. Uh, and it needs to be made a lot clearer, right? So they, they release these advisory circulars. And that's pretty common. We've seen it in uh, all the other different parts of the regulations for manned aviation, full scale, et cetera. Um, so this isn't uncommon. Um, but in this one, which is the part of the draft, includes all the rules for the CBO. And so that is hmm. 3.1.1 as part of AC or Advisory Circular 91-57C. Um, in that, it says... Uh, uh, 3.1 or chapter three, subsection one is community-based organizations, CBO. It says 3.1.1. A CBO is defined in 49, uh, I think it's the United States Code uh, 4, and it's got that weird tilde thing, 44809 subsection H, as a membership-based association entity that meets all of the following criteria. And they basically are saying, so that's what that, that code is reference, and then they basically outline in quotes what that code contains that they're referring to. So it's kind of kind right. that they put it right there. It says so in quotes. So uh, subsection one, it's described in section five hundred one c three of the Internal Revenue Code of nineteen eighty six. That is nonprofits. Uh, it's section two or subsection two is exempt from tax under section. 501A of Internal Revenue Code 1986, the uh, subsection three, the mission of which is demonstrably, so uh, the ability to demonstrate that it's the furtherance of model aviation. Uh, subsection four provides a comprehensive set of safety guidelines for all aspects of model aviation, addressing the assembly and operation of model air aircraft, and that emphasize safe air modeling operations within the national aerospace system and the protection and safety of individuals and property on the ground and may provide a comprehensive set of safety rules and programming for the operation of unmanned aircraft that have the advanced flight capabilities enabling active, sustained, and controlled navigation of the aircraft beyond visual line of sight of the operator. Hmm. That's, a, that's a big section there. And then yeah. subset five uh, provides programming and support for any local charter organizations, affiliates, or clubs. And subsection six provides assistance and support in the development of operation of locally designated model aircraft flying sites. So, um, and, then it, and then it goes through on how to apply for CBO recognition. So then it goes through, and I, I won't bore you with the rest of the details, but that kind of identifies like what it means to be a CBO. Which if you look at flight tests, you'll notice that the flight test community association, which is their future designated CBO is a separate entity than flight test. And it is a nonprofit. So flight test operates as a company, but flight test community association is a nonprofit whose sole purpose is to, give guidelines and rules and support and provide programs for just such a thing. So they, mm -hmm. they basically, their whole thing complies with section four, five, and six. And of course, financially through the IRS, 
I imagine that they comply completely with sections uh, one and two. And obviously the mission is the entire purpose is for model aviation. So, um, yeah, so it looks like it's coming down the pipe. It's a draft. When will it be released? Not really sure. Uh, it sounds like it's pretty soon. Um, I'm trying to see if there's a date um, from... There, there's no date as of yet as of when they expect. It says, FAA will let you know how to... Comments are due August 9th. So that was a while back. Um, the draft is available. You can go sc scroll and download and go and take a look. And it looks like mm -hmm. the FPV Freedom Coalition has already made their responses. Uh, I'm not going to get into that, but all I can suggest is that you go to fpfc.org. And then in the resources section, you'll be able to find, uh, it's the second one down right now, Advisory Circular 91-57C response. So you'll be able to get more information, be part, be active, let the FAA know uh, what your thoughts are about what they want to do with our hobby and how we can be part of it. Um, my concern is that, you know, when you're working with um, large community organizations such as park services, or um, if you're trying to get all your schools designated in the local area, maybe even the state, maybe even the country, it's going to take a long time. And the kind of information that they need <clears throat> is they need to know, let's see, uh, the, they need to know the person who's going to be uh, the person in contact, the institution name, the boundary of the, the, the geographical boundary of the site in question because they mm -hmm. need to put it on a GIS map. So there's that information as well as it needs to be renewed 120 days before the 48 month uh, time period that the FRIA is in place. So there's a bunch of uh, bunch of really good information in here that if you're looking to help like a local, uh, local group be part of a CBO or fly under the rules of a CBO, and designate your area to be a FRIA. Um, and that, that does, you know, and in here, I think it, it does include some additional stuff on what you need to submit and how to submit to being a FRIA. So yeah, requests and supporting document for fixed flying sites. Um, you, and what does it mean? And how do you get that involved? How do you get it in? And what are you going to need? So, mm -hmm. Uh, and it also indicates that basically you can be part of the, you know, you can fly to be a FRIA. You can, you don't have to be an AMA site, but you can say at this location, we fly under the AMA rule safety guidelines. Okay. So that's an interesting thing. Um, anyway, it's worth going down the rabbit hole as I dig, I kind of found most of that today. So, um, those are the sections that jumped out at me, especially as I was pertained to, to what I was looking for in the last couple of weeks. Um, I'm going to deep dive or dive deeper. There it is. Uh, strike that <laughs> reverse it. Right. Um, and I'll see if there's any more information that uh, I need to bring out to you guys and let you know. Okay. Well, appreciate that update. Um, cause that's just more than I can hope to keep up with <laughs> it's a lot man um 
It really is. But at the same point, like as we chew it off little bits at a time, um, this this circular is maybe 25 pages. It's a heck of a lot more um, digestible than a 450-page rule and response. Mm -hmm. so, anyway, uh, the other topic we wanted to talk about today um, is sizing a power system. That's one of the big things. While we've talked about each individual piece and part, um, of the system because knowing what you're getting into and what you're purchasing is kind of helpful, especially learning how to like how to search for what you want and the terms and all that stuff. It's like, but they all work together. They're all working as like one big um, model aviation ballet, if you would. Maybe that's not the analogy. I don't know. But basically, they're all working together in concert to create a system that does what you want for for the model aircraft that you select. So the question is like, well, how do you how do you go about selecting one that's right for your plane? Um, and and that's really what what we here what we're here to talk about today. Um, it, it there's a couple different ways. I would say that there's like a top top three ways to do it. And it's like um, there's like the ballpark way. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like we um, the by example kind of way. Or by physical limitation, I think would probably be the best way to describe that. Um, and one of, you know, and you can get it quick and dirty or you can get really detailed. And there's a lot of tools out there and we'll point you to some of the tools that can help you get to the, through the, the detailed part um, pretty quickly. Um, so let's see. Uh, the things you're going to want to have at the ready to do it. Um, you're going to want like the weight of the plane that you're looking to figure out your motor system for. Um, so you want to get it, it's all up weight, including the battery. If you can get the individual component weights that if you want to get into the nitty gritty, you definitely want to get that stuff. You want to understand what kind of plane is it? And what I mean by that is what kind of, um, uh, I guess like, you know, what kind of flying style is it? Mm-hmm. Because we've um, had that conversation before. Yeah, and I guess that's not even what kind of flying. So it's like, what kind of plane is it? Like, is it a glider? Is it a scale bird? Is it a 3D flyer? And that kind of stuff. You want to know what that is. But you also want to know what kind of flying you want to do. Because you might have a war bird, but you just want to putt, putt, putt it around. Right? Mm -hmm. You may have one where you want to be really aggressive. Or some people love to make sure it's scale. It's like, I've got a scale warbird. I don't want one that allows me to do the crazy stuff because I want it to fly scale every time I fly it. And so That's all of fair. those will lead you to selecting a very different power system. Um, with that said, those are the basics, right? Those are the three you definitely need to kind of get your, your, get your system, you know, figured out. But if you want to get into the really big details, you want to have your wing area. You want to know what airfoil you have on your plane. You can kind of estimate it, and using that with some, um, uh, with some of the airfoil selectors that you can find, you can. You'll then need the, the coefficient of lift. Uh, if you don't want to go to all that trouble, the Clark Y has a coefficient of lift of 1.4, and the range tends to be between like 0.8 and 1.6, depending on the bird. Um, 
you want to look at uh, if you have information on the motor efficiency, it's basically how well it converts um, power into usable energy, right? Most motors are between 75. Uh, that's the 75 is kind of like the given average. You just select that. You probably have a little bit better, but maybe not a whole lot. But if you have a really efficient motor, you can be 80 to 85%. Um, and that will have a play as to, you know, how big of a motor you want to select. So mm -hmm. it's kind of important to know like how efficient a motor you have with you or how much, how efficient a motor are you looking to find if you haven't selected. Yeah, and then we'll talk about what direction you need to go with. Like, you know, do you, <laughs> do you select size first? Do you like select prop? Do you select motor? Do you like, where do you start? And that's what kind of what we'll talk about. Um, but, but let me finish. The other thing you want is like your flying altitude. Cause, um, and your barometric pressure that, you know, you, you on average will fly at, um, really? and, yeah, well, the flying altitude with model aircraft isn't as big a deal, but it can be. And if you're flying a glider, your flight range, though, technically not legal by the FAA standards, most gliders will go up to almost a thousand feet. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? If you catch a thermal and you go for a while, you may be way up there. And there is a big difference in, you know, barometric pressure or, or you know, what, what sea level you're at. Because the, the pressure of the air will affect how your plane flies and the motor system you select for it. Because the less dense the air, so basically the higher up you are, the less dense the air, the less effective your motor is. So it's pushing through thinner air, which means... It's not going to um, it's not going to be as effective, which means you need a bigger motor to do the same work. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, and barometric pressure is, you know, if you have a high pressure, it means that on that day, um, your propeller will cut through the air better. It will have more grab is what it'll feel like. Okay. So those are like the things you may need extra. If you want to run through some of the calculation programs or run through some of the calcs yourself, I'm not going to provide all the calcs. Like I just, I just can't, I'm not there yet. I'm still trying to figure that out myself, <laughs> but there are a lot of couple, there's a couple sites you can go to. Some are free, some are not all of which will give you pretty good guidelines. There's a couple Excel spreadsheets that you can download that you can just sort of keep on your computer when you're like, Ooh, I want to check something out. Matter of fact, I used one of those to design the SR 72 and I, I like to think that's the reason why it was successful. Um, because there is, there's a lot of unknowns with that aircraft. Yeah. And uh, we managed to get it to fly. So a little bit. Uh, all right. So one of the things a lot of people recommend is try, you know, take your craft information, like the wing area and the, how much it weighs and all that kind of stuff and figure out your wing cubic loading. And the wing cubic loading is basically the takeoff weight in ounces divided by the wing area in square inches, and then basically convert that into square feet. So divide by 144. And then that denominator, that, that wing area in square feet, you multiply to the one and a half power. So three over two. And I, I know that doesn't seem to make any sense, but it's basically a uh, cube of a square root. Okay. Um, anyway, when you do that, I know it seems a little weird, but basically the reason why you want to get your, your wing cubic loading 
is that those numbers will give you a general performance characteristic that your model is expected to have. And it, it compares no matter what size, cause see, you know, aerodynamics doesn't scale. Like, you know, air affects the airplanes the same, no matter if they're tiny or big, mm -hmm. right? Like physics doesn't scale. However, um, by doing this wing cubic loading, it ends up giving you basically a, a scale equivalent. And so, um, the full size craft with the wing cubic loading of four will be like a glider and it'll perform like a glider and you can do the same calculation, but with your model. And if it has this four, it'll perform like a glider. Okay. And you'll find that it, no matter if it's big or, or small, it'll, it'll, those wing cubic loadings are unitless and they, they seem to basically hold true no matter what size your craft is. So it's not like you're like, Oh, I got a peanut scale, which is tiny, by the way, it's like 12 inches is, or 18 inches max, right? For a wing, um, to like the big birds, right? Mm. Um, okay. So let me go through the numbers. We've covered this before, so I'm going to do it briefly. This is way back. We did it. Um, RC trainers are somewhere around six, uh, sport aerobatics are about nine, uh, pattern, uh, pattern planes are 11 RC racers are around 12 scale models tend to be anywhere between 12 to 15. Um, depending on the model, obviously, you know, there's, there's a wide range of, uh, actual airplanes to pull from, to make a scale model from. Um, but if you wanted to scale a fly scale, like a real airplane flies 10 to 15 is about right. And then full scale airplanes are between 15 to 20. So they're a little different. They do fly a little different, but, but they're there. And that was kind of a, a whole discussion. And I, I mean, this is a deep discussion on the Reynolds number and how that affects flight for scale birds versus full size. And again, it, it goes deep. Um, we'll, we'll provide a link to it, but basically that's kind of, those are the numbers you want to look for. Mm -hmm. Um, so let's see, uh, I guess, uh, <laughs> uh, if you wanted to, let, let's go through, um, going, f uh, getting your ballpark estimates. Um, okay. this is another way to look at it. So when cubic loading is one way to decide what you're going to do with that. Um, another one is to look at the Watts of your power system, right? So you look at basically like we talked about, like, uh, what kind of flying are you going to do? Um, what kind of bird is it? Uh, what kind of power, like, what are you looking to do with that bird? Uh, as well as it's how heavy it is and all that kind of stuff. Um, so what you get is basically a watt per pound, uh, based on the kind of flying style you are looking for and the kind of plane you've got. Um, so I, I went through like three or four different sources, almost all of which are, honestly, they're, they're about the same. I don't know if they're all pulling from the same information or, or it's really just the wisdom of the ancients. And no matter which way you shake it, Watts is Watts is Watts is Watts. And mm -hmm. really what's like putting in a motor in a car. And I'm, this analogy might seem a little weird, but it, it's very true. Um, depending on the kind of propeller you put on it, it's like, well, do I want to have uh, a high torque, low speed? So basically if it has a high, like high static thrust, it's going to go generally pretty slow, but I have, if it has a low static thrust, it'll take a while to get up to speed, but when it does, it'll go faster. Um, and so depending on how you, in, a, in the car world, it'd be like how you gear it. 
um, it'll it'll either be like driving in first gear, where you know that engine will be going, but you won't be going far, right. or it'll be high gear where you know good luck getting up to the full speed, but boy, when you do, watch out, <laughs> right? So mm -hmm. that's like the and that's kind of like more about how pitch uh, kind of affects how your flight characteristics are, but basically your motor puts out a certain amount of power, right? Like it draws a certain amount of amps or it'll draw whatever amps it needs to spin the motor at the rated KV, the rated speed uh, rotations per volt, right? And you've got a power, you have a battery in there. So it's going to try to spin at that speed based on what battery you connect to it. And based on the prop, um, it's either going to, you know, be able to because it's got enough energy to actually push and, and catch that speed, or it's mm -hmm. always going to be lagging behind and keep pushing and pushing and pushing, and it'll keep pulling and drawing energy as much as it can to be able to meet that demand. Okay. Um, so what you got to look at is like, well, what, how much, how many watts am I going to need to fly like I want to fly? So I'm going to go with, let's see, there, there's an article in Flight Test that I'm going to link to. There's an article from rcairplaneworld.com. It talks about, and these all talk about watts per pound. And they're, again, like I said, they're all about the same rcplanes.online setup guidelines. They, they all roughly have the same number. So I'm going to give you the guidelines from rcairplaneworld.com because they seem to kind of set it up in a way that I thought was pretty easy to follow. Uh, and then there's another one for PLA that's done by Joy Planes. We'll talk about that and how and how and possibly why it's different, but it's not a whole lot different. Um, so basically, if you have a very light plane with low wing loading and you want a slow flyer, 50 watts per pound, that's kind of why you want your all-up weight, right? Okay. Um, 50 to 80 watts is like a light-powered glider, basic park flyers, trainers, Classic biplanes, vintage old-time planes, they're going to be in that 50, 80 watt per pound range. Um, and you think about it, like a flight test plane is, what is that, uh, about a pound, right? They're about a pound, pound and a quarter. Okay. So most of those motors are going to be, you know, they're going to be somewhere in the 80 to 100 watt range. That's, that's like an F-Pack you know, maybe even a B pack. And then you go a little bit higher and you'll, you'll get to some more. Okay. So 80 to 120 is going to be general sport flying, basic intermediate aerobatics. That's typically what we've like a C pack will kind of give you that feel. A lot of scale warbirds um, will suit this, this power man. And then hundred to 180 Watts will be the more serious acrobatic 3d pattern flying like scale EDF jets. And then when you want stuff to go really fast and you just want it to gun it and go like kind of the piranha, you're talking about like 180 to 200 watts or more per pound. Hmm. And that motor on the back of the piranha is a big one. For, for the size of that plane, it's a big one. With a very aggressive prop. It's like a six by six and a half or something. Oh, <laughs> That's ridiculous. And so what they recommend is that, uh, you know, um, and there's, <laughs> I don't even, you're making me smile every time I think about that. I got to get that back out. Anyway, um, so those other sites kind of echo a similar watt range. Um, cause again, 
watts is watts is watts, doesn't matter what manufacturer, there'll be different efficiencies with like, we talked about how close the motors are to the stators, uh, what kind of stator material that they're using will have better ability to change the flux, which means that they'll be more effective at changing the currents. Um, what kind of wire they use is the wire lined up because magnetic fields do better or are stronger when all the wires are lined up properly. So all the fields are going exactly the same way. They'll add better. Um, so all of those are internal factors, but generally speaking, if you have a motor that will output a certain amount of wattage, no matter what manufacturer it is, it's going to be pretty close. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> at that point, you're looking at things like, you know, how well do they hand up, handle heat? You know, what kind of re wire resistance? Again, you're looking at those finer points um, that actually make it perform better so it never gets to that overheating point, right? Mm -hmm. uh, anyway, we'll get into that. But uh, joy planes, uh, their wattage range kind of goes it's almost like it it's double like it it's like a category above um it's like slow airplanes and gliders they say it's 50 watts to 100 watts per pound that's kind of almost like that that second tier of the the thing we were talking about earlier um slow slow planes and and vintage go 120 to 176 watts it's really specific um that's watts per kilogram so okay 50 watts 80 watts no it's the same 120, yeah, yeah. It's the same same list. Okay. It's the same list. So essentially, no matter what you're flying, that list that I described earlier is the same. I'm sorry, they had it in kilograms. Oh. Watts, watts per kilogram, it's throwing me way off. I was like, holy cow, 300 watts per kilogram, jeez. I'm like, oh, that that, I got it. That's the same as the acrobatic stuff. All right. <laughs> yeah, okay, okay, I see now. <laughs> so pardon me. Um, yeah, Dad so gum, everybody but the United States. Oh, curse us. Anyway, <laughs> um, <clears throat> so what you're going to get is th use that ballpark to size how big of a motor you need for your plane based on what kind of flying you have, how heavy it is, pick the wattage. And then if we talked about if, if you forgot what the wattage is, it's voltage times the amps, which is I'm going to fly on this size battery. Right? I've got a three or four cell. Maybe I have a six cell. It's estimated to pull, you know, I only, you know, maybe I'll pull 50 amps. Okay, well, you know, 11 volts times 50 amps is going to be a 500 watt motor. Okay, well, that means that I can fly, you know, my general sport flyer is 100 watts per pound on average. That means I can fly up to a five pound plane on that motor. Which is a pretty okay. good sized bird or like a balsa flyer. Like you can get kind of heavy that, and that would be two kilograms. Okay. Roughly. So, yeah, I mean, that kind of gives you your ballpark. Um, you may want to leave yourself a little bit of space as far as a little bit of headroom. So that way you have a little extra punch if you need it, but these kind of give you that already. So you, you probably won't be too disappointed. Um, Let's see. <clears throat> so, so what I said is you're going to have to like, I guess the way I pick, once I have the rough wattage of the motor, then I go into the motors and I like find a motor. Um, 
and then you can get, this is going in the nitty gritty way is like, okay, then you take that wattage and you go to find a motor, you look up the motor chart. And in that motor chart, we talked about it in motors is like, you look at like, it says maximum power of, I picked a, what is that? A two twenty oh four twenty six hundred kV brushless motor, kind of like a flat pancake, you know, a quadcopter motor. It says it has 622 Watts. Uh, the ESC pulls 26 amps and, you know, it, it kind of gives roughly what it can handle. And then there's oftentimes, if you go to the right websites, like if you go to Amazon, they'll have kind of like a text blurb that has a lot of the bounding parameters. But what they, and they'll tell you like roughly what size prop and pitch, roughly as big of ESCs you should look for, what voltages it can handle before it overloads kind of the, the windings on the motor, right? Um, and, and the stats on it, size and weight and all that kind of stuff. Not always, but Mm -hmm. if you go to somewhere like Banggood or like AliExpress or, or even a main hobbies has some innovative has another, like they've got Cobra motors. And, and when you look at their, like their spec sheet, it, it's really detailed and they have like every kind of motor and they color code it so you can see which ones are good, which ones are bad. Which ones will overload your motor? Be almost too much, but I mean you got to make your selection right. Um, and so what those those charts do is they say based on a given voltage uh, of battery, right? It's going to pull X amount of amps based on what throttle level you're at. Are you at zero, twenty five? You know what I mean? And then it'll tell you its efficiency. It'll tell you how much static thrust it has, and it'll give you roughly like based that the chart is based on a certain prop. And it'll maybe go through a couple different types of propeller styles like, okay, well, this prop can do, or this motor can handle, let's say, a 6x3 or a 5x5. That's going to pull too much or a 5 by 42 or, you know what I mean? And they'll list like a handful of, like a family of props. And they'll mm-hmm. give you the characteristics for those. So you can kind of see like, well, I like to select this, but like not all props are made equal. Some of them are, are more flexible. Some of them are stiffer. Some like carbon fiber doesn't give, so it actually is going to draw more amps to pull it because it's going to, it's not going to flex under load. It's, it's going to have to push through that torque. The motor will. Anyway, so you look at those charts and, and, you know, it gives you a lot of information that you can use to size the rest of your system. Like, okay, this motor says I need a 25 amp ESC. Well, 25 amp ESCs are hard to find, but 30 amp is a good ESC like that. That's easy to find and they're plentiful. And that gives me the, uh, one of the estimates is with ESCs, when you select it, you want to give yourself about 10 to 25, uh, 10 to 20% headroom. So it never gets too hot when it's operating. Cause sometimes you pull more, um, more energy through the ESC than you think during aggressive oh, yeah. maneuvers. Right. So <laughs> you want the ESC to have a little bit of headroom to be able to handle that without burning up or shutting down or whatever it is, it's fail safes. Um, so you kind of, it's like, okay, well, 25, that's 20% headroom gives me a 30 amp. Like, that's good. So I select a 30 amp ESC, and then I look through that propeller chart. Oh, I've got a 30 amp ESC I'm selecting. Let's see, which I don't want to, I don't want to put that aggressive prop because that's going to probably overheat what I have. Maybe I select a 40 amp ESC because I do want that aggressive prop. I want to go really fast. And it's going to pull more amps than is probably safe with a 30 amp. I'll, I'll get a bigger ESC and then we'll be good. 
just know it won't run for as long, right? Because your runtime is the amp hours <clears throat> divided by the amps spent, right? Like if it's a, you know, 22 amp, a 22 amp hour battery, it's going to run uh, with a, two, uh, sorry, 2.2 amp hour battery. It's going to run 22 amp for 10 minutes, I think. I'm not doing my math right, but let's say, or six minutes, one tenth. Yeah, but it'll be yeah. six six minutes, right? Okay. Well, if I run something at 30 amps, um, it's going to run for less time. Mm-hmm. So that that might be something I'm not willing to do. So that I find a more efficient setting. And you go back and forth, and a lot of it you can spend a lot of time trying to figure this out. Um. So that's that's one way to to do the ESC. Um, also you want to check your BEC. Don't forget when you're doing it, like you can quadcopters have a battery eliminator circuit or BEC. They oftentimes have basically the power comes in and it gets distributed out to all the different motors and, and speed controllers. Right. So that power also, they have a separate power that can send out to the other peripherals, including your receiver at a clean, you know, regulated five volts. You don't need a, battery eliminator circuit but on a traditional airplane there's no flight controller board there's no power distribution board or anything so you need five volts from somewhere and escs basically take the power in and then they regulate how it gets out to the motor they also have a step down voltage uh, regulator that can then send five volts out to the receiver and so you now your receiver is powered with the power it needs um so but what you need to know is how many amps the ESC can handle pushing out to the receiver. Because if you have a lot of servos, like let's say I've got a C-Duck and it's got six to eight receivers, each of which is pulling potentially, let's say three quarters of an amp. Now I'm looking at like almost pulling four amps through that receiver to power my my uh, servos. If the BEC can only handle two amps, you're gonna, you're gonna cause brownouts on your receiver, which means you lose signal the servos don't work and your BEC might fry up. Mm. So it's like, okay, well, you want to make sure that when you're selecting your ESC, if you're, if you're using that to power your receiver through the BEC built into the ESC, the um, electronic speed controller, um, you want to size it to have the right amount of amps to be able to safely power all the peripherals that are coming out from that lead mm-hmm. through, through the bus bar basically on the receiver. A bus bar is basically a way to distribute power. It's multiple connections going from the same power source. Um, let's see. Then, then we do prop sizing, which again I kind of talked about it. Larger diameter with less pitch equals more thrust, but less top speed. Like the low gear on a car, smaller diameter with a higher pitch equals uh, less static thrust but more top speed, like a high gear of a car. Um, again, I'll have a link to kind of where they talk about some prop sizing. But most of the time when you're choosing a prop, you're going to look at the plane you have and either it's going to be sized to be scale with that bird, whatever size it is, or it's physically limited by the landing gear, right? You know, your landing gear stands off only so high. The body is only so far up from the ground. You can't put in an eight inch prop on a little on a little flyer. You know, you can't put a 24 inch prop. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you could try. 
dig a little pit as you turn it up, you know? Um, but basically that'll oftentimes be your limiter. So really what you want to do is pick the biggest prop you can for the, the size constraints you have. And then, you know, just double check that your motor can handle that power, you know, handle that size prop, um, and then go from there. But again, you also want to size the diameter and pitch, you know, according to what we just talked about. Like when I'm doing a glider, I, I want a big propeller. I don't need it to go fast. I just need it to get in the air. Hmm. Right? Essentially, the motor is essentially a, a glorified winch. That, that's all it's for. It's not for actually yeah. flying it around. Whereas if I'm trying to do a, a hot, um, <laughs> I'm trying to think of a pylon racer, right? <laughs> I want that baby to go fast. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Uh, it just makes me feel like I'm on the Death Star. It's great. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. And so all of this stuff is basically, and again, that's why I'm saying like, you know, watts is watts is watts. Well, watts is a measure of work. And that's just basically effort over distance, which is if your diameter of the prop, it has a pitch, which basically pulls the airplane through the air a certain amount of distance per rotation. You have an X amount of volts. The, the, the motor is trying to rotate X amount of times per volt, which means you can calculate how many rotations it should have in a given, you know, in a minute. And, th and thereby with that, knowing the pitch of the propeller, ideally know how far it will travel, right? Which means you can, you can calculate the volume of mass you're moving the plane through and that, you know, air has a certain amount of mass. I'm trying to think, uh, I think it yeah, that's not quite going to be right because no, any no, resistance I'm, of the plane on the air is like, Yes. Yeah. I mean, there's inefficiencies throughout this, right? So, but I'm just saying air has mass 1.2 grams per liter, but you can calculate that volume, figure out how much mass it's going to move. That's the work your propeller is doing. You, you know, multiply or reduce that work. Actually, you're increasing the amount of work needed by basically, you know, multiplying out there or dividing out the inefficiencies, right? So it's like, well, I need five watts of work, but it's 75% inefficient, right? Or it's 75% efficient, which means I need a 25% larger thing, you know? Mm. So I really need to select like a seven and a half watt or a six and a half watt motor, you know, to do that kind of work. But basically that's the work you're doing is the, the work you're doing is basically cutting through the air and creating... Yeah you know, creating that, that lift, overcoming the drag of the propeller pushing past the air and pulling the plane through. And, and literally the drag on the air, all of that is the work done. Yeah. I mean, I suppose one could argue that the work of the propeller is pulling it like, yeah, it's pulling it all through the air, but it's pulling also, the plane and its drag based on the coefficient of the shape factors. Yeah, but you, it, it's but complex. You could, you could flip that and say it's more pulling the air from in front of the plane towards it. So it's ultimately a potato or a potato. It's yeah. the same kind of. That, that, ultimately, when it yeah, comes that, down, yeah, that to wasn't it. quite as like 
oh, as yeah. I thought it was when it was in my head. So continue. <laughs> okay, okay, fair enough. All right. No, no. Uh, yeah, and it's, my bad. No, you're good. Um, and I guess and the, the point I'm saying is like that's why when you start getting into the really nitty gritty, you need to know your barometer pressure and your elevation over sea level because that mass per liter is different based on those the changes in barometric pressure and elevation. Mm-hmm. So you the have mass less of the work air to do, liter. right? As the as the air changes its density with those factors, the work needed, you know, is going to be less, or the work needed is the same, but you need to go through more of that mass to get that same amount of work done, which means it needs to be work harder. Anyway, it, so just you know, think about like there's a reason why. You need all those things when you start getting into the really detailed uh, calculators. And we'll have a couple links to that. The rcplanes.online, uh, there's a calc underscore motor thing. And that goes through a pretty pretty good uh, motor calculator. And then, of course, there's eCalc, um, eCalc.ch. Um, and it's, it's a paid service if you want to get all the nitty-gritty. And they've got a pretty wide selection of motors. And if you don't find the one you want, like that you have specifically... Mm-hmm. You you can find something very close, um, and do a lot of checks and you know try try a bunch of different systems, um, but the, even the free version has a lot of the like it's like every fifth motor, you know what I mean is available to you to kind of select so you can get a sense, and it won't give you all the details, but it really comes out with a lot of very useful information, and you can try like okay, well, if I have this and I, I want to do an aggressive oh. propeller and I want to do this ESC, okay, I'm going to use this battery. What does that do? It's like, okay, um, well, your motor's going to probably overheat because it doesn't have enough air movement. You're going to need a really good <laughs> system. or And that has to do with the resistance of the wire in the motor. Like it's pulling a certain amount of juice through it, and if the, the resistance in that motor isn't enough, well, you're going to start overheating. So you can't actually pull as many amps as you think. Um, and that kind of stuff. And he actually has that kind of information in, in his model, you know, in that calculator. So he can actually determine if, you know, what, what's kind of going to give first, is the AC going to overheat? Like that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Let's see. Uh, I did have to move a couple things around. Um, uh, another way, if you want to estimate, like if you're making a design out of foam board or something, I can give you what I use to estimate my, my all up weight for like a model like nobody's ever built one or nobody's built one out of the material you're using if it's foam board this is the way i do it i basically i check the whatever equivalent battery system like it, it's probably going to run a 10 inch prop which is about a cpac okay well i can measure all the components from the cpac you know it weighs x amount of you know grams right right and it's like i think 100 and if it's the uh, f-pack Let's see, yeah, 2200 milliamp three cell is typically 175 to 200 grams. I always kind of go with that. It's my basic battery, knowing that if I want to do heavier, I can. If I want to go lighter, I can. But generally, that's a pretty good all-around deal. Um, you've got, uh, you basically double that for the motor and the ESC, and it kind of covers the, the nine-gram servos. You figure you have four of those. Depending on the plane, you can add more. Um, and then however many sheets of foam board, I multiply that by 85 grams. That's basically 75% usage factor on 
a uh, hundred fifteen gram sheet. Okay. Uh, so then what I'll end up doing is I kind of go, oh, okay, got a Spitfire. That's three sheets plus a little bit more. That includes kind of a glue fudge factor. But if you're heavy on the glue, add 25 grams per glue stick. You think you'll probably overuse. Um, and then when you said and done, you're like, oh, okay, it'll be about 500 grams. It's a scale war bird. There's 500 grams, which is if you're doing watts per pound, you convert that to pounds. 500, that's one and a quarter pounds. Or, you know, one and an eighth of a pound. So that's all right. Uh, general sport, slow plane, vintage. Let's say, so we're looking somewhere in, you know, the 75 to 90 watt range. And then if you look at the motor, you're like, okay, well, that's like a 2204. So that's an F pack, maybe a B pack. Mm-hmm. Like, okay. And we've flown it on that and it works pretty well on those. Um, and it always says, you know, build light. You, you can't, you know, it's almost like you can't build light enough. You end up getting better handling. You get better, better control. You get uh, longer flight times. The, the crashes are, are less severe and the equipment won't be as worn. So that's, that's a testament to that. Um, and then let's see. I, I think... So that's like kind of the nitty gritty version. The other one is to say, I've got a plane that's about the same size as a Horizon Hobby Timber. It's a trainer. They use this motor system. Let's get one of those. It flies this size prop. I'll just grab one of those. And, you know, we did that kind of loose fudge factor of, and it's not entirely accurate. We've talked about that before, but basically trading one inch of propeller diameter for one inch of prop. It mm-hmm. the the prop diameter is a is a square function and the pitch is linear so it doesn't really it it doesn't scale much past that one inch too well right <laughs> that's why you don't want to you know go too far with that but basically yeah, you find a plane that's similar to the one you're looking to build and you see what motor motor system and ESC combo and all that because think about it the manufacturers work really hard to get the most efficient um, flight, you know, power system that will give you a good time for the kind of, uh, flying you want to do. So use what they've done. I mean, they spent more time than you ever want to spend. Go copy them. You don't need to start from scratch. Um, so that's another method is, you know, copy somebody who's already out there. Uh, and I think I'm trying to think there was a, there's a third kind. Um, or, or just kind of, you know, look at roughly the wingspan of the plane you have and how kind of knowing how efficient the wing is. Like, for example, um, a nerd Nick, right? He created the speed wing, which is basically a more slender, more laminar flow wing. So it doesn't, the drag isn't as high. Like you can take... It's the same wingspan, but it has less drag. So what you're going to do, you don't need as big a motor to run it the same way as you would like a traditional FT Spitfire because like, well, it's, it's more, it's going to be more efficient. Um, so you right. can actually. But sell. how, how big of a difference do you think that's actually making? Like uh, how. The, the aerodynamic efficiency on that. Yeah. Uh, well, it's enough to go from like 80 miles an hour to 100 or 120, right? 
Okay. Now, I mean, granted, I think he, you know, he he put a more aggressive motor on there with a mo- motor, you know, higher end, you know, speed prop. Mm-hmm. But at the same point, I like you can do that to the FT Spitfire, and you're going to kind of hit almost a terminal velocity. <laughs> you're not going to get much out of that past, you know, X amount of speed. I think it was like 90 miles an hour. No matter how big of a stuff you put on it, it's only going to go so fast. Whereas, like, once you start, you know, making it more aerodynamically efficient, then you can actually get extra speed out of it. Hmm. At least that's that's what I remember him talking about. He's like, yeah, you could you can do a lot of things to stuff, but it's like at some point you're really diminishing your your returns on that. The the only way to really, you know, do a high speed stuff is to really, you know, be aerodynamically efficient. Um. Yeah, I mean, so, and that's the thing is you go back and forth. Like you, maybe you want a bigger prop. Well, if you do a bigger prop, that's actually going to pull more air, which means you need more wattage than you originally thought. So you're going to have to change that. That motor is probably going to pull a different amount of amperage, which means you're going to have to reinvestigate your ESC again. So again, you go back and forth while you're doing this design as you're trying to find and hone in your your design that matches what you want it to do. Um it depends. Like that's the other thing is some of these planes, like you, you don't care about efficiency, right? If you're mm-hmm. looking at a long range model, you want to find the most efficient system you can. And that's where that grams per watt, you know, the efficiency rating on the motor chart can help you because, you know, and even then you just look at how many, you know, which, which prop setup produces about the same amount of thrust, but, uses less amperage that's going to be more efficient pretty straightforward um so that's where you know depending on the mission you're going to look for that but if you're doing like something like the piranha you don't you just want it to go fast <laughs> so you don't yeah. care so you're like i don't care just make it go fast <laughs> you know um and then there's the other aspect of like you can also look into the prop and you know we talked about how kv is revolutions per volt and you're like, oh, well, we'll just make it go really fast. We'll put a 6S and we'll, we'll put something crazy on it. And what I guess the full-scale pilots found is that somewhere about a, a propeller tip speed of kind of greater than 0.6, somewhere up to 0.8, the props kind of, they they really start to become, I guess, inefficient. Um, as far as what they're doing versus how much energy it takes to get there and really? to go to go much faster. Um, and then, of course, you start actually destabilizing the air because you're hitting the Mach cone and you know what I mean? Now, how much of that do you think is due to what with water we would call cavitation? Mm. Oh, you mean basically, well, I mean, a propeller is supposed to return the air back to a semi-laminar flow, right? It's still, I mean, it's still turbulent, like you said, but, uh, I don't, I'm not sure. No. So, so with, when I speak of cavitation in the, from the perspective of a water boat. Yeah. um, No, I I know what you mean that there's a void left there that basically the water expands to fill and it creates basically a suction force, right? Well, you, well, you've basically form a vacuum right, right. so you, it, you suck you sucking so you're sucking at the water so hard that the 
the water can't rush in fast enough. You're not moving mm-hmm. fast enough to replenish the water that the prop is displacing. And so you actually get uh, vacuum space in the water. Right. Where there's, where there's nothing. And that's where you'll hear the motor whine out real bad is because is when the prop happening. is essentially free spinning. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, it's not constantly free spinning, but... I have nowhere near the qualifications to answer that kind of... Yeah, that's, that's one of the things they... They just said that, like, the, the aerodynamic properties start changing at that spot. Okay. And you're like, well, there's no way that that can get that fast, right? And so I did, like, a... I guess a quick estimate of, like, a five-inch prop, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, let's say we're... We're using a 2204, 2300 motor on a 4S. It has, um, you know, based on the, based on, let's see, where, what kind of prop was I using? Uh, You're doing five a five-inch inch prop. Yeah, five-inch prop. And I figured that at, at a five-inch prop with a, f- a like a five-inch pitch, um, it had a 1.3 feet of forward movement per revolution. No, that doesn't make sense. No, no. That's you, that's the circumference. Yeah, your calculation circumference there. Yeah, you right. really didn't have to worry about the, the foot in that calculation, but no, I, I, you're right. Well, right, I didn't. Um well I did because so I, I the, the revolutions later. Anyway, um what because I was trying to figure out how many feet per minute because I was gonna compare that to the Mach number. And mm-hmm. Mach is in, you know, feet feet per minute. Uh let's see. So with that going at a four S at 2300 kV uh, with 1.308 feet per revolution, you end up basically getting 50,541 feet per minute that 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 the tip of those propellers are moving. Which, mm-hmm. if you look at what the Mach speed is, Mach, uh, Mach 1 is 66,900, almost 67,000 feet per minute. So we're coming close to 0.75 Mach with a propeller, a five-inch propeller on a 4S, on a so 2300 kV motor. Let me roll back through that math. Yeah. Because I see, I see what you've got on paper, so I want to, I want to make sure it carries over properly. Why? Right. A five, a yeah. five-inch prop. You calculate your prop tip distance per revolution by taking, uh. If you say a five-inch prop, that's five-inch radius. Uh, no, it's five-inch diameter prop. Did I? Yeah. Okay. So that's, that's D D times pi. Right. Which would be two pi r. Yeah. Yeah. Same thing. Well, which would be two times the radius. So yeah, five-inch prop, five uh, diameter times pi gives you your circumference, 1.3 mm-hmm. feet right. per revolution, which is what you were getting. And then you're multiplying that out by... 2300 kV on a four cell, mm-hmm, which is 16.8 volts. And that mm-hmm. ends up getting like, you know, 50,000, over 50,000 feet per minute, which, you know, is a pretty, that's, that's really dang fast. Yeah. Which yeah, is why a prop stake, prop strikes ain't no joke. Yeah. That, that's cruising. So, right. I, I just, I wanted to go through and specifically focus on that 
uh, prop yeah. diameter or tie so pie so that folks knew where you got that foot yeah, yeah. per revolution Thank statement. You. Yep. And then I did the same kind of thing with a 10-inch prop uh, using a 1100 kV motor, which is a, that's essentially like the CPAC. Again, using a forest battery. And I ended up uh, discovering that it was about uh, 0.72 Mach. Mm. Um, and if it were at like a 2300 kV revolutions, it would be going way one and a half, uh, 1.5 Mach, which is way past the speed of sound. So that would, <laughs> that would be crazy. Yeah. But I can't, can you swing a 10 inch prop at 2300 kV? You could try. <laughs> <laughs> you could try, but can you feasibly do it? Well, I'm, I'm sure you can, but what you end up doing is you create you creating a mock cone. If you get close and a lot of things start falling apart and you probably beat the crud out of the prop and yeah, I don't, I don't think it would ultimately function right. Okay. So let, let's. Is it possible to move a propeller at Mach 1.5? Sure. Theoretically, I think it's possible. I think it would basically aerodynamically fall to pieces. (laughs) You know what I mean? Where you wouldn't be getting thrust from it. You, it'd be getting some other... It would It would basically... I think the the force of the Mach cone would end up basically interfering with the next revolution where you'd be basically cutting propeller through Mach cones and it would just shatter the blade. That's, that's my hypothesis. And I would love to hear if somebody knows the answer to that who could help us like go through that mental exercise. Well, that's where then you dial back to a one-bladed prop. Oh, look at you, mister. Mm. Well, well, no, I, now hold on. Would the, as it's traveling through with the mock cone of previous revolutions, because it's not, not necessarily progressing very far forward as it rotates around to the next thing, it's hitting the mock cone of the previous revolution. And when it does that, wouldn't it, wouldn't it, I mean, it would be basically like hitting up against a wall because it's a compression zone that's denser than the average not bear. So, not so much. So remember, the mock cone goes out at a cone 30, behind it. 20, 23 degree, I think. 30 yeah. some odd degree. It's something around that range. Yeah. I'm you know, ballparking. I'm but, not but saying it's, tra- it's traveling outward as... You know, at, your at the speed of sound, your your device is moving forward. So, right, you know that mo- that solid compression wave you're talking about is going to move out of the way of the next revolution. More, what you have a problem with is the turbulence left behind with the sonic boom. <laughs> I don't know. It's a Which really I cool guess, exercise. I guess is actually see. I, I was always told. And now I'm thinking about Smarter Everyday video, so I think I'm wrong okay. with that statement. I was always told that a sonic boom was, the boom was the sound of the air clapping back together because you were cutting mm-hmm. through the air faster than the air can move out of the way. So you were basically separating the air. It was forming a vacuum uh-huh. pocket, and then the air was swinging And, the, and that's essentially the, the cavitation, the sound of the cavitation right. coming back. I, and when in fact it is, I think is basically the 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 cone, the building is of the air pressure waves at the front of those, at the the cutting edge of the propeller, and basically as or, they or add the together, 
We'll just say the wing because typically that's the what wing, you're yeah. hearing. Sure. sure. In this case, it's the propeller, the wing. But yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. But I thought it was basically the additive properties of that front wave basically standing on top of itself adds up and creates this massive yeah. uh, pressure wave. It's dumb, but I think I think my understanding of sonic yeah. booms was wrong in that it is the, I'd have to look, but I imagine it's actually the mock cone that I guess, is. I guess we have a new hearing. history segment. <laughs> the, the history of the mock. Uh, yeah. The Mach cone and, and hitting past Mach one. We well, know Destin uh, made a supersonic baseball cannon. Uh, look, we know a person who built a supersonic model to test the reduction of the sonic boom over over populated areas. Who did that? Red Jensen. Oh, right. Mr. NASA. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, come on now. Sorry, Red. Well, hold on. Um, Mr. NASA slash uh, future uh, pylon racer. No, he's not a pylon racer. Uh, air racer. Future, um, yeah, Reno, Reno air, air racer, racer champion mm-hmm. extraordinaire. Oh, my God. His plane has turned out beautifully. I haven't seen it. Dude, you need, to, mean, you need to go find his, his Facebook page because he updates all the time. He's basically got both sides of the plug done. Um, and the gel is done like it, and he's got the canopy ready. Like he's ready for them to start building the mold hmm. and actually fiberglass. And cause so we, now he's got the mold done so they can actually do the fiberglass shell finally. Nice. It, it just turned out beautifully. Like it, and the, and the plug looks, just, it looks gorgeous. I'm looking forward to okay. seeing it when he's done anyway. Okay. But that's, that's what I have. Admittedly, there's, we kind of went off a little bit of a tangent, but, um, you know. That's going to happen with us. Yeah. We use, you know, use that watts per pound. Or if you have like a flight test kit, they kind of say, hey, use this power system. Just go with the power system. Right. And if you don't like the way it's performing, then look at maybe modifying it. Grab an existing design. Look at one that's like the plane you're building or like the plane you have and say, what are they using? And copy that. If it's a commercial model, it's probably about as efficient as you're likely to get unless there's some sort of performance characteristic. But remember, they want you to have a great time flying so that you keep buying their product. Mm-hmm. So use that. Use that to your advantage. So those are the big things. And then, like I said, we got into some of the nitty-gritty about maybe how to calculate some of those things and how to estimate some of your weights. Like, again, if you're saying, like my Clerican, right, the, the Dollar Tree Leprechaun. It's 15 sheets of foam board, Whew. right? Like it's 15 sheets of foam board. And I looked at like, you know, what kind of motor system I want. Well, it's going to spin, you know, I knew it was going to spin like a 16 inch prop. It's going to be one of those um, monster scale motors if you're following flight test. So it's like a 4052 or 5243, that, that size can, it's heavy, but add those all up. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, it'll be about one and a half kilograms. And it ends up coming in really close. Okay. And I use that same kind of calculator. Well, 70, the, the, the plane will use 75%. Uh, so 25% of what I cut out will be scrap. Add, you know, it'll be a little bit more and then add some weight for the glue. Ends up being about that. And then mm. when I estimated that over the 15 sheets plus the motor system I knew I would use, I'm pretty close to, uh, to, the, to the weight I was aiming for. 
And you can use that to determine if the motor you're going to put in it is uh, the one you want mm. for the watts per pound setup. Uh, and again, if you just don't know how it's going to perform and you want to have a rough idea, because I've done that where I'm like, well, I think I'm going to do the thing and the stuff. And I'm like, I don't know. I think it'll be about this heavy. How's it going to perform? Use the the wing cubic loading. And that'll give you roughly how that kind of plane will perform on a completely unknown, untested, you know, fantasy dream that you kind of come up with and go, I think I want to make this fly. Right. So that's what that's kind of for. And then we have, we'll have links to a bunch of calculators and uh, some of these reference sheets and things like that for you. And I think All that's right. it. Well, thank you for covering that topic, Matt. Yeah, um, I hope it's helpful. <laughs> I just kind of put all what I got. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's the thing is, you know, you, you have a system that works. And let's say you bust your one plane. Well, you move that to a plane that's about the same size. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Go fly it. It all doesn't right, have to be well, that complex, but a lot of people enjoy getting into that. So, yeah. Well, I think we've gone long enough. Um, mm-hmm. We don't necessarily need to go over uh, the workbench because no. I think we also kind of talked about that a bit on the front end. So we did. Anything else right now? Uh, no, not right now. Um, all I can say is advocate for getting a Freya and making sure your schools have are a place for you to go fly for all those future kids who want to get in. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't know, go fly. Go have fun. That's what it's about. All right. Well, let's work on getting out of here. Guys, as always, we thank you for tuning in and listening. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation, uh, listening to us have this conversation as much as we enjoyed having it. As always, if you have any questions, thoughts, uh, show ideas, comments, anything of that nature, feel free to reach out to us. You can reach us at aviationrcnoob at gmail.com. You can reach Matt at Matthew at aviationrcnoob.com. And you can reach me Joe at aviationrcnoob.com. Swing by the Facebook. Uh, we'll have a link to that. But I think we're also talking about transitioning the Facebook to more of a group as opposed to a page. Because yeah. well, Facebook we'll really changed how that was. Yeah. Uh, how that was looking. Uh, see in the description, we have a link to the Discord. If you're not a member, feel free to join in. we got a pretty good, pretty good community who like to hang out, build, and just be encouraging and helpful to each other um and don't forget we've got uh three or four build nights lined up for the next couple months all the way through the end of the year true so please come out and join us at one of those we love having everybody there i love enjoying hearing what everybody's working on and the ideas about the hobby so if that's what you'd love to talk about come on and join us yep and we as always we're grateful to our patrons if you're interested in supporting uh in that way Feel free to head over to patreon.com slash aviation RC noob. Uh, and Matt, I know we're working on doing some updates and changes to the website. We're trying to get some stuff going on there. Mm-hmm. So maybe swing by the website. Um, yeah, see, see, see what we're up to. See what's changing. See the chaos as it uh, <laughs> unfolds. Because I know we broke the front page oh my God. What, last night. <laughs> <laughs> well, that didn't work. Hmm. Let's see if we can put That's it That's right. <laughs> That was fun. And if there's nothing else, Matthew. All right, we'll catch you guys next time. All right, good night, guys. Good night, Joe. Good night, Matt.
Bum 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 bum. Language. Well, we're not keeping this. Have we started? Language. Uh, yeah, that's what it is, and it goes. Yeah, it's like that. Where is all the people? I couldn't care less what you smell. Get in there, you big furry oaf. Mm, Okay, I don't... Maybe you'd like it back in your cell, your highness, your worshipful dust, your highness, your worshipful. I'm trying to find the conversation. <laughs> and I'm being Sam and I very distracting. You're being really crappy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would be doing the same thing, though, so I can't really blame you. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Goodness.